Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finn Arne Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today we have with us Vincent Ilenti, who's research fellow at the Bergen Institute and University of Southern California. Uh, and he will discuss his book, Deep Time Reckoning, How Future Thinking Can Help Earth Now, which came out with MIT Press uh, in 2020. So Vincent, we'll just give the floor to you. So from 2012 to 2014, uh, I spent 32 months conducting ethnographic fieldwork um, on how Finland's Okiluoto Nuclear Waste Repository safety case experts reckoned with deep time. Uh, these experts uh, developed forecasts of how geological, hydrological, and ecological events uh, could occur in Western Finland over the coming tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years. Um, they combined techniques of analogical reasoning quantitative modeling, uh, qualitative scenario making, mechanical stress testing, and geological and ecological fieldwork to do so. From this bricolage, transdisciplinary bricolage, emerge visions of distant future glaciations, climate changes, earthquakes, floods, human and animal population changes, and more. Their goal was to persuade Finland's nuclear regulatory authority, which is called STUK, uh, to certify the construction of what in the mid-2020s was likely going to be the world's first deep geologic repository for spent nuclear fuel. Um, my goal as an anthropologist, though, uh, was a little different. Um, I was exploring how the safety case experts' uh, kind of reflexive engagements to the limits of knowledge could be retooled um, or reformatted into epistemic strategies for more vividly imagining Earth's socio-ecological futures. So this meant recasting the safety case expert uh, efforts as an anthropological problem space, uh, a space for rethinking the value of future gazing expertise uh, during an Anthropocene moment of political, ecological, and epistemic uncertainty uh, that I'm sure we're all familiar with. So now social scientists like me um, are usually pretty quick to underscore how these sort of uh, models of deep time repository safety assessment models are reductive hyperconstructions or epistemic oversimplifications. And that's because they are. Um, predicting distant future worlds in Finland or anywhere else is an impossible task. Uh, but I'm an anthropologist and I see it as my job to try to sort of peek inside my informants' worldviews uh, and apprehend their thinking's internal logics, um, no matter how irrational they may, may initially seem. Um, and early on in this fieldwork process, something became clear to me. Um, most of my informants pretty much agreed that their task is impossible. Uh, they saw it as sort of obvious that their models are reductive. They told me their models are somewhat subjective. They're mediated by the historical and organizational context in which they're produced. Uh, they basically got the message. Um, they described their models as educated guesses or as sort of the uh, most credible forecasts they could devise uh, using the best science and technology made available to them by their employers. So. Deep time reckoning, the first thing I learned was uh, something that requires deep time humility. Um, so knowing this, I felt I sort of had to resist the impulse to dismiss the safety case futurologies um, outright as fantasy documents um, devised solely to manipulate gullible stakeholders into consent, um, which is how they're sometimes portrayed. Uh, so of course, the safety case models are made to persuade. Um, but for their authors, there's something a little different. Um, they're, these kind of flawed but pragmatic reductive projections born out of self-critique, uh, multi-perspectival visioning, 
and multi-decade cycles of revising and revising and revising. Um, yet their labors to construct these models are not theirs alone. They're enabled by a wider Finnish public uh, that's known for really high levels of trust in um, domestic civil servants, police officers, educators, ministries, journalists, regulators, legal systems, engineers, and scientists, right? So Finland is a country that's unburdened um, in many ways by the grisly history of domestic uh, military industrial um, um, settler colonialism or radiological experimentation um, on unwitting populations or atmospheric nuclear weapons testing, et cetera, that quite rightly reduced public trust in the US context around their nuclear waste repository projects. So when I arrive in Finland, they've already completed um, this uh, really participatory consent-based repository siting procedure. Um, and the idiosyncrasies of Finnish expertise culture become especially clear when I returned to the United States in August, 2014, the sort of reverse culture shock of coming back to your home society. Um, so back then, you know, just in the past decade or two, we'd seen uh, national security experts' failures to stop 9-11. We saw an Iraq invasion based on false pretenses about WMDs, a terrible BP oil spill in the Gulf, uh, shoddy FEMA response to um, Hurricane Katrina. We saw economist failures to predict a global financial crisis. And we saw disheartening disclosures of mass NSA digital surveillance. Um, all the techno-utopianism surrounding Silicon Valley was starting to give way to concerns about digital privacy losses, cybersecurity hacks, monetization of socio-political division, um, which is really exacerbated these days. So simply put, trusting and expertise is not the code of the road in the United States. Um, and this became even more clear as post-truth and alternative fact become mainstream buzzwords and you know who enters the Oval Office. Um, so this created sign of a dangerous political epistemic condition that had been brewing for years and then just suddenly shot up um, with Trumpism. So in my book, I refer to it as a deflation of expertise. Um, and as Latora has similarly observed, you know, the disintegration of a shared agreed upon public sphere of facthood sort of opened the doors for large corporations, lobbyists, fringe experts, et cetera, to reframe public understandings of science. Um, and in this milieu, it struck sort of a different chord when social scientists moved to deconstruct or destabilize the, the supposed or ostensible hegemony of objectivity, truth, or facthood. Um, a lot of these same analytical strategies were increasingly picked up by right-wing populists to sow doubt about climate change models, um, epidemiological models, or even basic claims to journalistic rigor. Um, so, Social theoretical notions like Foucault's power knowledge remain vital and uh, uh, illustrative. They just resonated a little differently during this time. So in Trump's America, for instance, political power um, was not necessarily gained through an alliance with technocratic knowledge, but through this kind of charismatic or performative mockery of it um, at rallies, for instance. So adding to that, you know, expert insights in the US and elsewhere were dulled by corporate knowledge management red tape increasingly, um, adjunct, adjunctif adjunctification hiring trends at universities, publisher parish productivity pressures, et cetera. Um, they're warped by these sort of short-term contingent gig economy research funding contracts. Um, and so in my book, I kind of show how when slow moving long-sighted expert inquiry recedes from public view, uh, can have an effect on public debate. It can give it this kind of state of futureless liminality. 
uh, this manic fixation on the present moment that just kind of shoots down any sorts of proposals for envisioning uh, better future worlds. Um, yet at the same time, looking Earth's radical long-term in the eye during what some call the Anthropocene remains this pressing imperative. Um, so in my book, I tried something a little different uh, with my 121 interviews, taking this all into account. Um, I wanted to understand the safety case experts embrace of long-sighted future gazing on its own terms and build something alongside them uh, rather than doing the usual move of just kind of brushing off their worldviews or trying to pull the rug out from under their claims to deep time knowledge. So um, I decided to focus instead uh, on something that we could all agree on, uh, my informants and I, that most of our 21st century societal institutions and life rhythms are calibrated to pathologically short um, time horizons. Uh, 20, you know, for example, 24-7 cable news cycles, corporate quarterly earnings reports, political election schedules, sudden stock market shifts, throwaway consumerism, knee-jerk culture wars, fickle pop culture trends, contingent gig economy employment contracts, and momentary social media attentional economies. So we have this shared aversion to shallow time discipline, as I talk about it in the book. Um, and the response was this experimental book I published with MIT Press uh, titled Deep Time Reckoning. Um, in it, my informants and I uh, sort of co-developed these speculative and pragmatic epistemic strategies uh, for nurturing time literacy uh, and envisioning more long-sighted um, uh, socio-ecological governance systems. Um, and as a result, deep time thinking is portrayed in my book almost like a Foucauldian technology of the self, uh, a discipline of self-cultivation that's akin to training in jujitsu or music or meditation, fasting, art, or athletics. Um, so in this spirit, um, let's, uh, I think today I will return to the safety case experts uh, uh, technicalities and see if I can absorb and then retool and redeploy their um, lessons as starting points for envisioning social, political, and ecological relations like I do in my book. But first, I'll tell you, I'll answer the question, what is the safety case exactly? Um, well, the safety case uh, details the repository's technical design, um, and it forecasts the facility's fate over the coming millennia. Um, there, it has biosphere assessors, uh, 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 making projections about Western Finland's um, lakes, rivers, mires, forests, et cetera, sprouting up, disappearing, and changing shape and size over the next 10 millennia. Um, it has experts considering far future soil erosion, floods, and fires. Has experts envisioning um, three kilometer thick glacial ice sheets during the next ice age slated to occur 50 or 60,000 years from now. Um, um, they have experts envisioning potential seismic events, earthquakes and rock shears that could occur as the ice sheet retreats after the next ice age. Uh, they have models of how the current Okiloto Island site, it's a tiny islet, um, will eventually become an inland site. Uh, in their models, glacial rebound from the last ice age eventually causes Finland shoreline to widen even more into the Baltic Sea, and it eventually engulfs Okiloto Island where the repository is going to be into the mainland. Um, and they explored more pessimistic scenarios too. Um, these included models of how 14 different kinds of radionuclides could escape from the repository, travel through groundwater flows, get released at various points on Earth's surface, and disperse in above ground ecosystems, bioaccumulating, um, of course, in plants and animals along the way. That's all in their models. 
Then, um, remarkably, they create these quote unquote conservative assumptions um, that 6,000 far future people are all gonna eat local food and live in Western Finland around the repository. And some of them, a critical group as they call it, are gonna face a greater likelihood of exposure due to unlucky food selections. So with this as the basis, the safety case argues, as everyone knew it would, because it's made to persuade, remember, that all these future people are gonna be safely below Stuke's stringent regulatory dose limits, um, even under these extremely unlikely circumstances. Um, 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 after all, it is a piece of regulatory science. Um, so anyway, grappling with far future Finland shaped my informant's epistemic sensibilities. Um, they routinely took findings from retrodictive sciences and then stretched them into predictive sciences. Um, this made them uniquely comfortable with epistemic excess. Uh, they knew that reaching out towards deep times complexity would, in Marilyn Strathern's terms, always leave remainders in their analysis. Um, these remainders can elicit more analysis, which leave more remainders, which can elicit even more analysis, ad nauseum, and so on forever. Um, so my informants created this kind of stepwise um, approach of developing updated versions of the safety case that um, are supposed to grow more robust over the years. They call them iterations. So the first iteration comes out in 1985, then there's another one in 92, another one in 99, uh, there's another one in 2012, that's the one I studied ethnographically, it was a little late to be submitted. Um, and another one's gonna be submitted aspirationally at least later this year. Um, so each iteration of the safety case is uh, epistemologically tentative, it's a work in progress, right? And a new one is assembled every 10 or 15 years until the repository's planned decommissioning, which is gonna occur in the year 2120. So that's a while from now. Um, so when navigating this uncertainty, um, the safety case experts were left to embrace something uh, sort of like what Levinas called infinition. They had this cognitive state of radical complexity um, in which radical complexity kind of is allowed to overflow the thoughts that try to think it. Um, so the safety case experts tried to integrate self-critique of this uh, complexity and admissions of vast amounts of uncertainty into their own reports. Um, they did so using methods like knowledge quality assessment or sensitivity analysis, right? And the idea is that um, their models claim to legitimacy will be bolstered uh, and not necessarily undercut uh, by just admitting to and then transparently detailing in your reports the various um, reductive assumptions that are found in your knowledge base, right? So they, they also understood um, from this perspective that Finland's futures must always be seen in the plural. Um, the safety case didn't put forth one single overconfident model assumed to perfectly represent the far, far future. Um, instead, it kind of forecasted this multiplicitous series of projections about potential future events, and each were kind of weighted to different likelihoods of occurring. Um, so as my informants saw it, venturing multiple parallel visions of tomorrow can tell us something, uh, but definitely not everything about far future Finlands. Um, they also emphasize that systems modeling is alone is not enough, right? They, you have to venture multiple lines of reasoning alongside of it, uh, to use their term. So this means convening several different experts, each with different dis disciplinary backgrounds, uh, to create a safety case that is, to use Adrian Curie's terms, uh, methodologically omnivorous. Um, so 
it, it was sort of framed like this. If you don't trust the models of far future ecosystems or hydrogeology, well, you can turn to the defense of the repositories engineered barrier system that keeps the waste in. If you don't trust the engineering reports, you can look at the mechanical strength tests done on the proper nuclear waste canisters trying to keep the waste in there. Um, if you don't trust those, you can turn to these qualitative scenarios, which sort of detail, those are more for us, um, detail potential of far future Finlands and pros and try to encompass some what if scenarios. So this is a rhetorical strategy of strategic redundancy, right? The idea is that um, the pitch that they're making is, um, uh, the we have to integrate the logic of many different fields to reduce the likelihood that one assumption doesn't invalidate the wider range of projections. So, um, so when they did this, they distilled fragmentary sequences of hopes, calculations, fears, data sets, dreams, models, and anxieties about the future into these mundane artifacts of technocratic paperwork, right? Uh, but this wasn't really naive realism or crude positivism. Uh, they didn't backslide into what Malinowski once called the cult of the pure fact. Um, rather, theirs was a reflexive, self-critical, polytemporal sensibility that was well-suited for navigating ambiguity, uncertainty, and unknowability. So this is kind of a far cry from the paranoid, totalizing settler colonial realism uh, that uh, Jessica Hurley describes, for instance, um, in uh, her study of US nuclear, US nuclear waste scenario makers. Um, so Hurley's case study is Sandian, Sandian National Lab's 1991 inadvertent intrusion scenario report. Um, for the WIP transuranic waste repository in New Mexico, she critiques the report's claims to descriptive totality, right? But in Finland, after 120 interviews, I witnessed something that I saw more as a multi-perspectival mode of transdisciplinary infinition. Um, it's an epistemic sensibility that's, to me, a refreshing counterpoint to the myopic scientism that generated a lot of the thorny problems of the Anthropocene. So, in my book, I encourage readers to get comfortable with epistemic excess by sort of experimentally adopting safety case sensibilities, right? Um, so this means kind of approaching the safety case as a pragmatic but reductive toolkit for rubber banding the imagination back and forth across time. So I'll close this talk um, today in, this, uh, in that exact spirit. Um, I'll take a safety case technique as I do in my book and then redeploy it on a new plateau um, or terrain. Um, uh, I call this a reckoning in my book. Each chapter ends with a few reckonings where I spin off threads of safety case thought into thought experiments for the reader. And what emerges here is a speculative mental exercise encouraging readers to reflect more comprehensively on long-termist polytemporal um, Anthropocene timescapes. Um, so, so here we go. Um, one line of safety case reasoning involves the power of analogy. Some safety case experts studied a present day glacial ice sheet in Greenland as an analog for approximating a far future glacial ice sheet in Finland during the next ice age. Others studied a bronze cannon from the shipwrecked 17th century Swedish warship Kronen, which was submerged for almost three centuries in Baltic seawater. That became an analog for how Finland's nuclear waste canisters may or may not corrode in the future. In both cases, safety case experts use present day objects, right? as stand-in features for making these kind of reductive comparisons across deep time. The glacier and the cannon can be understood, therefore, as what Hecht calls interscalar vehicles, objects that can draw us to move through deep time and human time, geological space and political space. So in my book, I challenge readers to replicate these transtemporal mental gymnastics in their own lives. Here's an example. 
when I lived in Washington, D.C. writing this book, I learned how um, in 1922, excavators clearing ground for the nearby Mayflower Hotel found fossilized bald cypress trees 20 feet underground. These things grew 100,000 years ago, roughly. And today, four bald cypress trees planted in the mid 1800s grow in Lafayette Square right near the White House. So walking home from work, I tried to deploy them as interscalar vehicles, right? Um, um, and they sort of became analogical strategies I could tap into to help me think more widely across time. Uh, they gave me kind of uh, ancient tree imageries I could envision when reimagining the nation's capital um, as a literal swamp, a prehistoric swamp, um, um, as it was a long time ago. And this sort of stretched my momentary now into wider histories and futures as it did for the safety case experts. So this is, of course, a direct transposition of safety case experts' analogical reasoning techniques. Um, and that's just an example of how, in my book, um, the safety case techniques can become tools for nurturing deep time thinking during a moment of shallow time, discipline, Anthropocene ruination, and populist political epistemic um, instability. Um, they can also help establish these sort of long-termist cognitive pathways for addressing socio-ecological slow violences from biodiversity loss, microplastics accumulation, to climate change, to antibiotic resistance, and so on. We just have to remember, and this is the key point that I go back to from earlier, safety case models have a little something to teach us. They can never offer us anything even remotely close to certainty. Any safety case expert will tell you that. So there's many limits to what a bronze cannon submerged in the sea for centuries can really tell us about a copper canister, um, nuclear waste canister buried in granite bedrock for millennia, right? But what they do offer is this kind of empirical concreteness or materiality that's at least a little more tangible than just empty speculation about the future. And if extracted from their context in the nuclear industry, I'll close by saying, um, they can be redeployed to better and more useful ends, I think. Um, the, they can become a basis for epistemic sensibilities um, that are more hopeful, forward-looking, and time-literate. And I think that they can be retooled and recast and re-engineered um, into a, a, a more robust and fruitful and flourishing outlook for our current planetary crisis. And thank you. Thank you very much for this intro to your book, Vincent. Um, it sounds like a really fascinating, uh, both a study and then a way to apply a study um, and not just stay within it, but, but really move beyond it. Um, and so I was thinking here when you were describing the kinds of um, data that people, that these forecasters are using, you know, there's right. a lot of this kind of geological, um, climatological data. But do they yeah. also account for people in these scenarios do they i mean you, you said there was one scenario where it was so many people lived in the vicinity but do they account for what people do uh yeah. like oh yeah there's gonna be some renegade group that's gonna break in you know and and actually you know use it to make nuclear weapons or or there's going to be you know some kid that's 12 years old <laughs> that accidentally <laughs> finds this you know or what do, do they account at all for, for human behavior 10,000 years from now? Yeah. Um, well, I said, yeah, to the, your question, but the answer is no, <laughs> not really. So, I, um, yeah, that's a good question. No, not really. Um, uh, hold on. 
Yeah, so the basic pitch for the, that would be the realm of the biosphere assessment models. Um, so those are scaled to a 10,000 year time horizon. Uh, and the, the rationale behind that is that saying anything beyond about humanity beyond a 10,000 year time horizon in Finland is nonsensical because there's none, there's no or barely any evidence for human anything there prior to the last ice age, right? Um, so that's how much you can backcast as much as you can. You can't forecast more than you can backcast, which they say. Um, and what they do is they try, they try to keep it really minimal. Uh, in the US, um, which kind of was the uh, pioneer project, which was supposed to go first, but then it got derailed uh, in 2008 or 2009 during, um, for, for loads of good reasons. I mean, it was basically shoved in the backyard of people in Nevada and there was questions about volcanism and landscape, et cetera. Lots of litigation, et cetera. Um, it was, um, the model there was there was a well water scenario. The only thing that's really modeled is this person who lives in Armagosa Valley nearby. Um, and then there's this well, the person who goes to a well and then drinks from the well. And then here's what we can speculate will be in the well water. So Finland tried to go beyond that by having this critical group I talked about, these 6,000 far future people. Um, they literally modeled the release points on the surface. Um, see where they would travel around. 14 different types of radiant nuclides can potentially make it to the surface in the next 10,000 years or so. See where they get bioaccumulate in plants and animals. See how they go in lakes, rivers, mires. See how they end up on the dinner table of these people. Um, but no, we don't know anything about the people other than that. So I try to correct. Uh, we don't know anything about them other than what they might possibly eat. And also when I said a conservative assumption, um, that is kind of, fits to this epistemic sensibility I mentioned, it's explicitly uh, conservative assumptions. So they, it is impossible that 6,000 people could live in the Okiloro area, um, the Areoki municipality in Western Finland, eating only local food. That current population depends on food from elsewhere coming in. Um, so the, the rhetorical strategy they use is to sort of say, even in this impossibly pessimistic scenario, which is unrealistic, it, it's outside the realm of possibility. These people will be safe, even if they're eating all local food. If you have food from elsewhere, you're unlike, you're less likely to get repository um, radionuclides inside of your food. Um, they do that. They do a few other things that are outside the realm of realism too. And it's, it's actually contentious in the modeling community uh, because some say, it's good to bound your assumptions with unrealistic things. Like there's a disappearing canister scenario where they model a scenario where a canister just suddenly disappears one day and then what happens? Like what happens to the radionuclides if the copper and cast iron piece are just gone? Um, so there is a degree of non-realism in the models. As for the people themselves, um, there's two ways to look at it. I mean, the US did a heck of a lot more stuff like that trying to, um, for their WIP defense military nuclear waste, nuclear weapons waste repository in Carlsbad or their Yucca Mountain project, which is now defunct. The former one's operational actually, but it's um, it's not a spent fuel repository, so it's a little different. But they, the US entertained a lot of outlandish scenarios. Um, they literally made a report called um, the Free State of Chihuahua, uh, funded by the Department of Energy um, and um, you know, done by Sandia National Laboratory and Bechtel Corporation, some of the greatest laboratories in the land. Uh, and they came up with a scenario where in a post-sovereignty US 300, after 300 years sovereignty collapses because we can only backcast since we haven't lived, been a country that long. Um, 
there's a war between the Anglos and the, the Hisp Hispanic populations and they're, they're picking up um, rubble and, and, and valuable items from ruins of the American empire and old cities. Um, and it's drawn directly from Walter Miller Jr.'s uh, 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 Canticle for Leibowitz. <laughs> um, and they kind of, they're kind of like got laughed at a little, I mean, not laughed at. I mean, it's, it's the thing about when you're predicting the future, um, you have to leave some realm of possibility for absolutely insane things to happen. Because one thing we know is the future is never exactly like the present. That's a certainty. But in some percentage of likelihoods, it's just, this future is stranger than fiction. So Oh, what, what just happened here? Okay. Oh, you're, you're, you're here. You're here. Yeah. yeah okay. So it's, it just, I don't know, but it's really interesting to think that. about the, um, you know, what you're saying though, that, that, you know, you think, oh, is it strange? You know, is it too strange? Is it too outlandish? But I think if you ask somebody, you know, even 20 years ago about our current situation in 2020, um right. slash 2021 they they would have maybe been like nah i mean you know there's some historians that would have been like yes absolutely but <laughs> but uh, many people would have kind of been you know so so when you you know have that kind of scenario um that you're describing i don't think it's really as outlandish as it as it sounds i, I think it sounds probably quite realistic um and then it's interesting that though finland i was wondering how they thought about or did they account for Russians in their their thinking, having been um, conquered and, and occupied um, by Russia in the past, that there's, um, yeah, I would think that as a, as a political entity, that would be something they would have, I don't know, kind of had in the back of their mind. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the Finnish war game exercises and the NATO exercises are with a foreign adversary that is never called Russia, <laughs> but you just kind of know <laughs> um, that that's who it assumes it's assumed the adversary is, is, is to be. It is an interesting thing, right? Because um, if you look in the history of Finland, they were basically controlled by Sweden for six or 700 years. <laughs> Um, and then they were a Grand Duchy of Russia for a hundred years. You're talking that we're up to the 1800s now. And then there was a vicious civil war in the 1917 and 18. And then along the way, there were massive famines. It's not an easy place to live um, necessarily. Um, then there was world, two world wars and uh, there was a continuation war with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union annexed part of Karelia and uh, other parts of Finland, um, still, still sort of a sore spot today. Um, there has been economic recessions like after Nokia, I, I, sorry, before Nokia, um, after in the early nineties, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Finland had a recession, but then the ICT sector came back, but then Nokia was bought out by Microsoft, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, when you look at the year 2120 <laughs> as the year that they're gonna, forget the deep time models. Um, when you look at the year 2120, when they're gonna decommission the repository, um, the re there needs to be ongoing project community from now, continuity from now until 2120 that's historically unprecedented. I mean, 120 years ago, what was Finland up to, right? I mean, it was being released from Russia. Um, so it is optimistic. Maybe 
you know, the real nuclear weapons lovers, uh, if there is a such thing, will tell you that mutually assured destruction and deterrence created a situation in which global world war is impossible because it's created this peace because we know that we'd all be dead the second it happens. I don't subscribe to that ideology. Possibly the future won't be like the past, but I would agree. I mean, look at the 90s Simpsons, uh, 1990s Simpsons episodes where Lisa Simpson is the president and then Trump after Donald Trump is, is is elected office, that was a joke. It's just not very long ago that Trump would actually be elected and then it happened. So you have to leave room for the absurd. The Finns in their repository safety assessments didn't, but I guess the question, but there is a rationale to that, which is we don't know what's gonna happen, but we can guess that they will drink water <laughs> um, and that they will eat potatoes or beets, right? Like, and they will live in structures, just basic things that you can model that say, this is the best we can do, try to qualify it. So I don't know what's better, the, the radical Prometheism, almost sci-fi stuff the US did with building these monuments to warn far future people not to build here, trying to create, they had pictures of Edvard Monk's The Scream to try to scare people away because it's supposed to create this scary visceral response. They had this field of thorns, land art to scare the hell, scare people away. Finland doesn't do that. They say, no, that's kind of this, they don't say the word hubris, but the idea is it's kind of hubris to assume that we can do this. So let's put this in a kind of um, island with no resources that would be mined for. It's kind of cold and tucked away. It's kind of dreary um, in the future. So no one's going to want to dig there. So then we cap it off. We don't mark it. And then we try to forget. So the goal is to remember to forget the repository. It's a different approach and I'm not sure what's more realistic, <laughs> um, but the waste is here when we have to do something, so. Yeah, exactly. So Micah, you have a question. I'll click to unmute you there. Yeah, thank you for this, Vincent. It's been interesting um, thinking about this uh, and particularly what you were just saying about uh, remembering to forget and hidden, hidden waste. Um, I'm thinking about the relationship potentially between this genre that you've discussed in your book and the environmental assessments that we see being done for things like mining companies um, and other natural resource projects. So I was wondering if you think that, I mean, often it's the same kinds of people who are involved in these sort of future looking um, guesses about what a mine will do to a landscape and what the health impacts will be on it. Uh, and so I'm just wondering if you think if there is a relationship between those two kinds of writing um, or what the, the differences might be. There's a close relationship between those kinds of writing. <laughs> um, um, but this is the needle I'm trying to thread uh, in, in the book. Um, obviously, um, Well, the whole history of futurism and scenarios planning in the US can't be disconnected from, I mean, it goes back to the Macy's, the Macy conferences back when Gregory Bateson was involved with those, there were anthropologists involved with those, there were computer scientists involved with those, there were, uh, and then cybernetics comes and this whole systems analysis logic comes and it becomes the kind of dominant logic of the military industrial complex of the US. Um, this is how defense intellectuals think about the safety of a nuclear submarine, about how the Soviet Union and the US will um, modeling different scenarios, 
this there's this kind of systems analysis cybernetic basis between modeling the far future then it gets kind of taken up in these environmental impact assessment settings uh like for a nuclear waste repository um you know or an aircraft carrier or something like that you have to create a safety case to prove to the regulator to prove to the government supposedly beyond you can never prove but um prove that it will be uh, or try to demonstrate that reasonably that the juice will outweigh the squeeze or whatever and then um you'll be able to keep it safe so that yeah they have a shared lineage um however uh there's two ways to look at it i mean i would be if i would be troubled by a world in which we just said that safety case work or environmental impact work on a mine for instance shouldn't be done because it's all a bunch of epistemic reductions and it's it's a kind of gives a license to the the nuclear industry or the mining industry to do something um uh because i can't imagine a world in which not doing that work would be better because i don't think not doing the work would stop the project uh so uh people always say like okay these are completely false and these are just tries to get these are pushes to get credibility and legitimacy um that is true to an extent but it's also true that you are tethered these are a bunch of phds working for the vtt technical research center of finland for alto university university of helsinki um um uh engineering consultancies uh various other universities lund university in sweden other places coming together doing something and then trying to put it past a bunch of PhDs and a nuclear regulatory authority, which compared to other countries is pretty uh, separate from um, uh, sort of the governmental structures. So um, it's it's a tough needle to thread. I think that the, the line I take in my book is number one, these things are epistemic fictions as they would be in a mining, uh, a shorter term mining environmental um, assessment. They're trying to bound future possibilities. Um, they're often skewed uh, in to favor their authors, but that is the job of a responsible regulator to call foul and then ask for more information. Um, so there's a such thing as a mature process, uh, and there is a such thing as um, um, a better or worse nuclear waste repository project if you don't do this assessment on a mine, or if you don't do this, for instance, in Gabriel Heck's work on um, uranium mining in Africa, you have a situation where none of this work was done. <laughs> no data was collected on the health of the miners um, working in the thing and now we don't have any data on how much harm was probably caused to these people uh, because there weren't regulations saying you must do environmental impact you must do health you must tabulate health data so overall um, it's a it's a flawed reductive technocratic process with a with a history that might raise eyebrows um, i think it needs to be done because otherwise we can't tell a nuclear waste repository that is robust and sophisticated and uh, bringing together some of the best minds in the land to build something from just throwing it in a hole in the ground. So um, yeah, so trying to understand the epistemic sensibility, the broader context, and then trying to understand a mature process from a immature process or a responsible regulator from an irresponsible regulator, et cetera, is the key labor as far as I'm concerned. Um, so yes, the connect the short answer is yes, there's a connection. <laughs> it is the same thing. Um, they did an environmental impact assessment before the safety case um, was assembled actually in the early 2000s in close dialogue with the community, um, et cetera. Community would ask questions and they, they did a <laughs> smaller scale safety case. So um, similar, similar idea.
<laughs> I guess the the main difference is I would see it would be that a lot of the mining EIAs, so the environmental impact assessments, look at a much shorter time horizon, even when they're actually making a big, big hole in the ground that can't yeah. be filled. They they look to when is the mine going to close and then they come up with kind of an immediate scenario for what will happen to that, you know, land um, immediately afterwards. But I think the to me, the difference is that you that this nuclear waste scenario is actually much longer projection, you know, in the kind of 10,000s, tens of thousands of years. Um, and I, and mines don't do that, or, you know, a normal EIA um, doesn't, doesn't think along those frames, even if they have to think through the life of, you know, a mine these days, I mean, a lot of mines, they only permit enough to have kind of a 30 year lifespan. And then what they do is they repermit to expand the mine further every time. That way right. they don't have to think so far in, in advance. So they know they're actually gonna do more, but that's not how they permit. So um, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting to consider. I would definitely agree with that. Um, that's actually interesting because a lot of heavy metals are dangerous, extremely long time frames. And the thing that's more troubling about a mining company um, than this is that mining companies are often companies and they boom and bust they start up that the, the length of a fortune 500 company has gone radically down since even the 50s and 60s and startups you know are flavor of the week they come and go mergers acquisitions boom you're gone who's taking responsibility for that thing hopefully the government steps in and the taxpayers pay for it um that's not an ideal scenario either um so yeah the time horizon is a lot different but the other thing is i mean a basic premise of my book and my field work is we need to think longer term about our planet <laughs> and there aren't many resources for doing it out there. So the starting point was kind of, I have to scan the world for what are the active projects with a lot of funding and a lot of, you know, educated people coming together to future gaze. So the nuclear is almost tangential uh, to what I'm saying. Like here's a place where there was a reckoning with deep time. <laughs> and the limitation is that it's in this regulatory commercial context full of consultants and then contracted experts from universities and state researchers um, who are on contract and the finished geological survey um, it's not all people it's not all hired guns i mean a lot of them are very legitimate geologists at the geological survey of finland etc um, um but it is in this context of regulatory science of course so the, the idea is I scan the world for places where long-term thinking is done and there aren't really that many options. Uh, I didn't have much to choose from. There's this, there's the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, <laughs> right in, uh, in uh, up Norway way. And uh, that one we actually saw flooding <laughs> due to climate, climate change. Um, there's the WIP Nuclear Waste Repository in Carlsbad, New Mexico, which is my new project. I actually, my new project is on accidents um, on this short term. Um, they they thought the problem was 10,000 years, how do we prove the safety, but it turns out 14 and a half years into the process, there was the problem of exploding nuclear waste drums. <laughs> they put the wrong type of kitty litter in a nuclear waste drum. Um, They're supposed to use inorganic as kitty litter as an absorbent to get all the liquids, and they used an organic absorbents or organic 
rather than inorganic and then cause a chemical reaction accidentally makes 700 dirty bombs explodes um, or deflagrates. I'm not supposed to say explodes, my informants say, <laughs> but it explodes um, and then shoots out fire and radionuclides for two hours and it's bad. It shuts down the repository for 35 months, costs $2 billion. That's more than Three Mile Island cost the US. Um, and really lousy situation. They already printed out badges that said um, 15 years of safe operations and then 14 and a half years <laughs> into the process, there's this accident. So. Uh, that's an example of the short-term operational safety thing being the, the hard part. Um, I actually think I'm actually more of an optimist that I think this is the dangerous part. When you put something down in a salt mine, the biggest danger is someone's going to dig it up in the future and the, the unknowable that you mentioned, right? Like the, the what will society, the U.S. imagine mole miner scenarios where there's these like like horizontal mole type contraptions mining everything and eventually they hit the repository but even that becomes a local accident it doesn't kill millions of people so i don't know i'm not too concerned i think when you, when you have the waste on the surface um you're it's subject to wildfires <laughs> hurricanes wars recessions collapse of sovereignty terrorism people going postal at work and then killing people, things like that. When it's deep underground, you're at this different temporal, geological temporality. It's not fully safe. Creating models around this is not is reductive and has limitations, but it's what we got. So I'm scanning the world for all these places. There's not too many. There's the Long Now Foundation, which is Silicon Valley kind of tech type of perspectives. There's a new thing that's coming out. Actually, I did a collaboration with Headspace Meditation app <laughs> recently. I just got, I've had an odd time during the pandemic. And now I, 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 I talk about how contemplating deep time can have wellness benefits. <laughs> and uh, um, we talk, we go down, I actually take the host of the, their podcast series down into the repository. You're going deeper and deeper into the repository. Then we talk about deep time down there. It's the year 2120. And then they start to backfill it. So we have to run up. <laughs> and then when we get to the surface, it's 100,000 years in the future. So um, anyway, um, there's not many places I can look and there's not many ways to do it. So this is, I think, one of the more robust scenes of deep time thinking. And my challenge is to try to spin it off in different directions. Yeah, exactly. Um, Christine, you had a question. Hi, thank you for a great talk. Um, my question um, requires a little bit of context setting, but um, my background is in wildfires, wildfire management. I've spent the last 15 years looking at it in the North American and the Australian context. And um, in that time span, we've gone from maybe five to 10 year cycles of um, looking at catastrophic wildfires to now having almost yearly catastrophic fires. So we are in a state of relentless triage. There is very little time for thinking about next summer, let alone what we need to do right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I relocated to Etihad Zurich last year. And when I got here, I started looking at nuclear waste management because it's oh. an issue in Switzerland too. And um, actually, I came to it roundaboutly from looking at wildfires in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. But um, 
what fascinates me about your project, and I'm about two thirds of the way through your book, is the way that you manage to keep somewhat of a positive spin on it. Like there's a positive tone all the way through. And um, it might change towards the end, I don't know yet, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but what, what strikes me as fascinating is this notion of future thinking and I'm trying to apply it to the context of wildfires because things are just going to get worse, right? Not just in North America and Australia, but in Europe too. And when you look 50 or 100 years down the line, it's really, to say it frankly, pretty terrifying what mm -hmm. these fire conditions are going to look like. So how do you manage to keep these panics at bay <laughs> future thinking when we know that the way we're currently going with climate change that might not be that might just not be a lot to work with a hundred years from now right okay yes uh first that sounds fascinating i just wrote your name down because i really want to hear about wildfires in chernobyl um <laughs> second of all uh yeah i think the thing i'll point to is what i'm positive about in the book it's not that the future is going to be good i myself am a pessimist to the core, a cynic to the core, like most humanities, social science people. Um, I study optimistic people. Um, I'm actually doing a project on the Long Now Foundation. I just went with them to uh, the, the this to camp in eastern Nevada to a site of bristlecone pine trees that are 4,000 years old. Uh, this, I literally just came back from that. Um, I'm interested in positivity, um, but uh, I have trouble adopting it myself. But the thing I'm optimistic about, I'd say there, is that um, no, I think, I mean, wildfires are going to get worse. Uh, climate change is going to get worse. <laughs> um, uh, and the optimism would be more that if we were to reframe how our societies work and what we value and what we were, it is, it, it's almost in the realm of imagining a world otherwise. There, the world can always be otherwise. The world can always be arranged differently than it's arranged. We could create a society that does do far more stewardship around wildfires. We could create a wildfire science, modeling science, that is far more accurate than what we have right now, which is not particularly accurate. Uh, modeling fires is very difficult. And then as you likely know, modeling percolation of water, there were advances in water percolation modeling because of nuclear waste that happened. Um, some of the early models of how uh, the Yucca Mountain repository site would remain dry or not dry. Uh, turned out to be, it turned out to be 150 times faster than the models predicted for the water to get from the surface down to the bottom of the repository because they found bomb pulse nuclides, little pieces of atomic bombs testing down at the bottom. Uh, so models are often proved to be wrong. Uh, but you can, the, the positivity in the book is more about iteration and uh, the idea that we, could it is possible still there is still some realm of possibility that we could um imagine a society that is arranged in a way that could more responsibly handle climate change um wildfires nuclear waste and things like that um will that happen doubt it uh is this in the realm of possibilization and hypothesizing yes is it a total labor of imagination? My book always talks about thought experiments, um, but this tight, tiny 
kernel of hopefulness um, and trying to create space for it, I think is the thing that needs to be put here in a time of incredible melancholy uh, and in time of almost nihilistic uh, hopelessness about the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have our work cut out for us. Um, so the book is, I, seeing the book is the thought experiment that it is, I think is the key part. And to say, I'm not necessarily optimistic about climate change. I'm optimistic that we could get better at climate modeling <laughs> or that we could more responsibly create governance systems that respond to climate models in ways that mitigate future climate change. That's more the optimism. Um, and still it's a guarded and self-critical optimism in the epistemic sensibility I brought up about infinition and radical uncertainty and being comfortable with navigating it. We can become more comfortable with navigating radical uncertainty rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, so the, the, the argument is against completely throwing away the safety case models as having nothing to offer. Um, but you know, if you don't believe in the future, you can't be responsible for it too. That's another thing. So I wanted to squeeze in a final question before we have to end, because uh, one thing that fascinated me in, in you know, talking about deep time is the way the nation state kept popping up in the way the, the framework for the stories, which I think connects the deep time to space in different ways in that, you know, space is organized like geopolitically uh, and socially in particular ways. So how important was that in this story is that, you know, this was Finland, these people were Finnish uh, and so on, because just thinking about, we lived seven years in Umeå, right across the, the Bay of Bothnia from, yeah. from Finland. And it was, you know, huge protests when the, the Finnish started building a new nuclear power plant right across you know, in the winter, you could walk on the ice over to Finland and people used to do so in the good old days. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, while they did all their due diligence and talking in Finland, there had been no such thing in Sweden. So in a way, there's also this like this di diplomacy story here, you know, the diplomacy of deep time. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing, too. Um, it matters and it doesn't. The, the way in which it does matter. Uh, is that I don't think that there's a lot of people who try to say that um, highly participatory consent-based citing procedure that happened in Okiluoto should be exported to other countries. And I think that's true. I don't think, the, the, well, Finland also gave the municipality of Arayoki um, a, a legally binding veto right. So if you go through the environmental impact stage, which, which was a precursor to the safety case um, in the early 2000s, and Arayoki says, no, we don't want the repository here. Then the, they have the fully legally bounding, bound right to say, get out of town, nuclear industry. Sorry, we wasted your money. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, and I think it's because they knew they would say yes. Why? It's sort of a nuclear oasis because there's already nuclear power plants there. They're, they're co-located with nuclear power plants. Um, but also for the reasons I mentioned, there's large amount of trust and expertise in technocrats. The whole Finnish nuclear industry is under the Ministry of Employment and Economy. Um, which is one of the most, a civil servant for the Ministry of Employment and Economy in Finland is one of the most trusted people in the country. In the US, that's a four letter, four letter word, a bureaucrat. Um, I don't think it was that hard to get consent in Finland. <laughs> I think if you were to do a consent-based procedure elsewhere, as one should, you're gonna get a no. <laughs> 
Nevada, where Yucca Mountain fell apart, was bombed 800 times. It's the most nuclear bombed place on earth because the US tested <laughs> their nuclear weapons there. There's indigenous communities there. They, it was shoved in the 1987, 1987 or six, seven, screw Nevada bill, just shoved it, decide, announce, defend, shoved it in their backyard. All this political discourse, you're not gonna get anything. Um, the Finland matters in that sense. It's 5.5 million people. It's, it's really homogenous. There's a, there's a level of societal cohesion there that there isn't in other places. There's not this history of nuclear bombs. There's a, his, there's a fear of nuclear, but it's not from the Finnish. There's a trust in the Finnish engineer, but there's a mistrust in Russian nuclear power plants right across the border or like the nuclear submarine graveyards in you know, Andreva Bay. Um, before Y2K, everyone was afraid that the Russian Sosnovy Bohr nuclear power plant in Finland, not everyone, but many people were afraid. They, they sold out of iodine tablets in the, um, in the pharmacies because people were afraid there was gonna be a meltdown outside St. Petersburg. And actually they sent a commission over there to see whether they're safe. Um, and uh, came back and said, actually they're Y2K compliant because they're analog and they don't know what day it is. The, the, <laughs> the reactors there are not digital so there won't be the millennium bug. So basically Finland matters. Yeah, it matters in that sense. Does it matter into deep time? Nope. <laughs> All of this is just, you know, um, that's just another place. And I try to get that and get at that in my book. I try to fill the, maybe because I'm American, I like the sci-fi scenarios and like the whip and Yucca Mountain people did, but I tried to fill that gap, imaginative gap. So I begin each chapter of my book with a vignette. Um, and I actually published these vignettes in Scientific American recently. Um, you can Google it if you want to skip the book and don't want to pay. Um, but I created these futurological scenarios. Sometimes you're in Finland, late as time goes on, you're in the land once called Finland. Um, and then the last scenario, tens of thousands of years from now, it's told from the perspective of a microbe sitting in a lake that may or may not be contaminated by radionuclides from the repository from the former nation state known as Finland. So right now, yeah, it matters because it's only finished nuclear waste. It's only going to the repository. Finished nuclear waste used to go to the Soviet Union but then they found, you know, then it was worried about instability after the end of the Cold War. They found out what they were doing with it <laughs> when it once it went there. Um, now it's totally about Finland and the nation state, but I think as temporal increase happens, it ceases to matter. Um, but then again, thank you, Finland, for, you know, hopefully doing something responsible now, uh, because imagine if it were just sitting on the surface at the nuclear power plants in casks or pools. And then that process of historical chaos, unknowability and complexity and chaos theory or whatever goes on, the butterfly flaps its wings and who knows what happens in the future. So I don't know. Um, that's, that's a good way to conclude. I don't know about yeah. the future. I think that's a good, good closing word. So hang around and find out, I guess. Um, yeah, so our time is out. Uh, thank you then to uh, Vincent Yalenti for yeah. uh, <laughs> presenting his book, Deep Time Reckoning, How Future Thinking Can Help Earth Now. It came out at MIT Press 2020. And thank right. you to everyone in the audience too for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for showing up. This is uh, well worth getting up at six for.